right, all right. Hello, 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 as John Oliver says. I really hope he hasn't copyrighted that. I'm sorry, John, you're a really good comedian. My name is Catherine. I am the host of Straight Talking English, and you are listening to part of our one-year anniversary spectacular, where, for the whole of February, I'm going to be bringing you interviews with some really, really cool poets and people and awesome people you might want to hear from. I am not one of nature's marketers, but I am doing a hyped up voice, so I think you might enjoy that. I am STR8TalkEnglish on Twitter. I am straighttalkingenglish.com. If you search the full context on Amazon, you will find my books. If you hack into my laptop, please don't do that. You will find about 22,000 words of a book on the context of the power and conflict poet. So that will be up and about soon. If you search on YouTube for Straight Talking English, you will see a bunch of really awesome context videos that have my face on them and I'm out and about and I'm in places. Alright, I've got to say a really, really big thank you to the organisation that have facilitated this anniversary month adventure. That is the Poetry Society. They have been placing poets in school for 50 years. If you are in a school, maybe you're a student, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're just wandering past the outside at a safe distance and you're thinking, dang, that is a building that could use a poet in it. Then drop them an email, educationadmin at poetrysociety.org.uk. If you are interested in some free lesson plans, poetry competitions, and loads of free education resources, check out poetrysociety.org.uk forward slash education. All right. Our special guest today, cool, cool individual by the name of Caleb Parkin. He has sent me a bio to share with you, and I love it, so I am going to share it with you. Caleb Parkin is a dayglow queero techno eco poet and facilitator based in Bristol. He has won the second prize in the National Poetry Competition 2016, first in the Winchester Poetry Prize 2017, and a bunch of other shortlists. He has had poems published in Rialto Poetry Review under the radar. Butcher's Dog, which I assume is not a magazine that's printed on a dog because that is animal cruelty and we do not support that straight talking English. Coast to Coast to Coast, Strix Magma Finished Creature, Tentacular, again, don't print it on an octopus. We do not support cruelty to the ocean life either. And Molly Bloom, he has worked in media production for the Beeb and as a teacher and inclusion worker in schools and pupil referral units, which is like the insidey version of what I do for a day job. So I am loving that. He has tutored for Poetry Society, Poetry School and First Story. 2019, completed his MSc in Creative Writing for Therapeutic Purposes. And I am asking about that because I found that really fascinating. Through the Metanoia Institute and was awarded Arts Arts Council DYCP funding to explore queer eco-poetry in his first collection. So let's have the man himself introduce who he is and what he does. Absolutely. Uh, My name is Caleb Parkin. I'm a poet, facilitator, performer uh, based in Bristol. I do lots of work in schools um, and with everyone from primary age children up to elders and elders with dementia and everyone in between. I guess my journey to becoming a poet started, I I wonder if poets, uh, Mary Oliver, the American poet, reckons that poets are born, but of course you also need to do a lot of work on that craft. Um, For me, 
it was writing particularly at, at school actually i had a i had a poet as a teacher which um i think really makes a difference so he would share his work and i, I remember we were kind of we, he brought his books in for us to buy and would do really interesting stuff with poetry so you know this is really relevant this podcast for me because that was definitely the moment i thought oh well, this is kind of what i want to do but i guess coming from coming from a background where i, I didn't really see poetry as a job you know, I'm not from a background with loads of money uh, around and went to a state school in Suffolk. And, and then it took me quite a long time to build up a load of other skills while always writing. And I went and worked at the BBC in programme production and TV and radio. Uh, I went and worked in a few other things and then moved to teaching. And then it was when I moved to teaching that um, I realised it wasn't for me, but I did want to work with young people, did want to work with people in poetry. I did want to keep writing. And then since then, I guess I, I started on a scheme called Teach First um, and was in, in Yorkshire. And after that, I kind of segued over to, to doing an MSc in creative writing for therapeutic purposes, um, which was a real fantastic opportunity for me. And I graduated that last year. So it, it's given me the tools to work with anyone um, and with one eye on the, the focus of well-being, I guess. But alongside that, I've got a writing practice. Um, and at the moment, I've got some Arts Council funding to work on a collection. So it, it's taken a lot of pushing at the door, uh, as it does for all poets. But you have to keep pushing at the door. And eventually, you start to become part of that kind of ecology. Um, and so, yeah, so it's quite an exciting place I find myself in now, I think. So how do we get students who just say, nope, 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 into poetry? Yeah, I think I think sometimes I don't like it is a really valid response. And I think there's a lot to be um, be explored there. And I would always give that as an option. You know, how do you feel about this poem? Do you like it? Do you not like it? What what image in it stands out to you? Um, and I think one of the things I did pick up from formal teaching were ways to ensure a kind of inclusive reading of a poem, because um, I had some good teacher trainers. And um so making sure you kind of read through it in our heads, look for any words we haven't met before, explain those words, give any context for the poem very briefly. You don't need to take so long over that um, so that everyone in the room can access the poem in from where they are, I think. Um, choosing poems really well, I think, as well. You know, it's, it's That's really important. And it's a real art, especially with, if you're working with poetry therapy and writing for well-being. Choosing the right poem that's the right length, that's the right... Uh, kind of diction level, that kind of stuff. Um, and then ensure it, that's that's step one, I think. And then from there, you can yeah, make sure that everyone can find their stance on that poem, including not liking it. I guess there's other stuff there about group process. So if people don't feel uh, confident contributing to a group, you need to have set the group up so that everyone knows that their, their view is valid and is not going to be shut down. And so often... I think historically, if you didn't say the right thing, or you know, you didn't say it in the in a PEE paragraph or whatever it is, um, which are painful so often, uh, then then you know it gets shut down. But I feel like so. I guess I, I guess also I think of some of those counselling and therapeutic skills of saying, "Oh, it sounds like you're saying this." You know, questioning, drawing out, um, inviting someone to explore what they think about an image or um, the whole poem or whatever else. So I think there's lots of um, for me, lots of parallels with that that well-being process, and then how you can really engage young people in poems um, and hear them properly. Can you tell me? You mentioned poetry therapy. Can you tell me a bit mm. more about that? Because that sounds really cool. 
Yeah, um, it's a practice particularly well established in the States um, where you, you use a poem as a therapeutic kind of device, I suppose. So to talk about the poem together and, and often it kind of dovetails with uh, therapeutic creative writing, writing for well-being. So you might start with a poem as a way into, as you do in school sessions, you know, I very regularly do this, use a poem as a model. But you can you can extend that conversation to be quite a therapeutic chat between a group or between a therapist and a client. And I definitely think there are moments when you're doing a bit of both when you're in a school. You know, it's got therapeutic aspects, which is not to say it's therapy. Yeah, um, I got interested in writing for well-being when I was working in a pupil referral unit, which was a therapeutic learning environment. Um, so I moved from when I, I did teach first and realised it wasn't for me, and the kind of the the kind of processing of young people aspect of it, I found really like did me in. I, I didn't. I felt like I was failing all of those young people. It was just too too much of a like production line. Whereas actually going and working, and I got some um, uh, agency work afterwards when I was just trying to figure out what I was doing and thought I'd go and try out working in some specialist provisions. And I ideally did so and actually realised that I'm quite good at working with those young people and um, and started doing more training in it and started to kind of... And what you're doing then is working with a small number of young people with really complex situations, really getting to know them and, and learning how to communicate well and build relationships. And, and what I started doing was some bits of writing... Um, as you know, I'd always have my practice of writing, and then that moved into doing ever more of that. And then when when we decided to move back from Yorkshire, where we had been, we were living on a narrow boat. That's another story. And then decided to move uh, back down to Bristol, where I, I now am. Um, and I found this course, which is a Metanoia Institute uh, CWTP, which stands for Creative Writing for Therapeutic Purposes, um, and got a job in a different pupil for down here. So it's key stage four as well. And um, yeah, and it just fitted really well with those contexts. And the more I the more I did of that kind of stuff, I thought, oh, I've all, I, I have been writing for well-being my whole life, as a lot of people are. And I think a lot of poets do um, as a way of finding my way through the world. And the more I got into that as a string to my bow, uh, it's been brilliant. So yeah, I graduated last year with the MSc and I did a dissertation, as I mentioned, in uh, museum and galleries and ways of working with writing for well-being. So I'm really into ekphrasis and working with objects and this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, but it's great. And I think even if you're not running a um, directly writing for well-being group, the practice of the practices of that are so useful for making sure everyone's included, that you're not freaking anyone out, that you're making the space as it needs to be. Um, and actually for stuff like differentiation which i think there's a there's really interesting and choosing poems and all this so i think it's a really great adjunct or kind of complementary skill with some of the teaching practice i had and the two of them go really well together um, and I, I would love more teachers to explore writing for well-being and, and read more books about it of which there are many <laughs> do you keep you've been said a couple of times um pick the right poem for the group mm -hmm. How do, how do you pick the right poem? There's a, a whole world of poems out there. There are indeed. And isn't it fun exploring them, I think? Um, I'm, you know, I've got a gazillion anthologies and I'm always picking up new ones. Like I was working with a group um, in a school over in Swindon a while ago and, and they were really into computer games. And I thought, well, someone will have done a computer game poem anthology. And of course they have, you know. Um, or there was like, and some of them were really into football. Um, and I'm not. Uh, but it doesn't mean I can't find a poem that's beautiful, that engages with football and that has a, something in it that we can write. You know, I'm often looking for form 
a form that works for that group and that they'll access you know content and language that's going to suit them as well it's not going to be off-putting and yes if it's a case of um so what was the uh kayo chingoni's got um and i hope i pronounced that right so just read a poem of, of his about mispronouncing his name but i'm pretty sure that's it um has a beautiful poem called choreography uh, which is about footballers dance and about Ian, a brother playing football but it's also his dance and it's gorgeous and you know, and I, as someone who's not interested in football, I could get on board with that poem. And then another, and then the other piece we looked at was uh, a piece about, well, you don't know initially that it's about Super Mario uh, and it works really well. And then I got the young people to write a piece where they imagine themselves as a computer game character, except that that's real life. And then you write about that, you know, if you're Crash Bandicoot, if you're Sonic the Hedgehog, whatever it is, and you, that's just your, that's real life and make it very real. And they got that. You know, so so for me, it's looking looking at form, looking at language, looking at theme and topic in a way that um, so that they'll get excited about that, and then thinking, okay, what are the different ways that we could respond to this, um, and giving some some options in in that response, um, which is often form, but um, you know things like not the furniture game, which lots of writers, poets work with and, and teachers, because it's such a great form to work with, and people get it, uh, and it's got a low floor, high ceiling aspect where you could write. I often put a number on things, which is a useful teaching thing. So I might say, you know, I want like five lines minimum, but if you write loads more than that, brilliant. And then everyone's achieved it, you know? Um, so there's quite a lot to it, but then what's nice is the more you go about choosing poems, I think it becomes really intuitive. You'll just find a poem and think, yes, this group will get this. There's something we can do with it. Uh, and then what I try and do is to then make a, a sheet with everyone that has like bullet points of how to do the activity. So it's really self-contained. Um, yeah, so that there's, but there's tons to it. I wrote a big section in one of my assignments for my masters on choosing poems for groups because I think it's not thought about enough. You know, it's a real, it's, a, it's actually a really a real skill and art. So we've got to ask, since this is kind of the whole purpose of season four, what do you think about the anthology poems and poets? I mean, I think um, I will, I will, uh, you know, pin my my flag to the mast in saying that I think the curriculum's gone the wrong direction in terms of it favouring and massively um, overweighting the like canonical old white dead men, um, you know, and that's like, and it is, it's too much, um, and of course that's off putting because those a lot of the ideas in those, not all of them, and I've got yeah. I was just thinking about the canon with some other work I'm doing with memory cafes with elders with dementia. And, um, and that's been interesting because I had to push through some of my own resistance to the idea of canonical poetry, which for me can often hold uh, imperialist and chauvinist and sex. You know, it's got all stuff that I'm not really into. And so I have to kind of, I have to, I had to find canonical work that spoke to much bigger themes, um, like Tennyson's The Brook, which is about the, the natural world and the transits of human life. I was like, I can get on board with that. But so so much of what's being pushed, and it is political, so we, let's just say it, um, I think, uh, is is with a political agenda of, of a conservative idea, big and small c, of um, what what English literature is. And actually, what's, what's been liberating for me in working with First Story and working with Poetry Society, where I go into schools with both of those organizations and on my own terms is I can choose other stuff and if I found a poem I know that a group will access um that could be their 
their their way into poetry so starting with some of, that, of course you can get there and i think then i i would encourage young people to then have a take a critical stance on rudyard kipling's if for example um on what it might say about masculinity uh, and how relevant it might be but i think you need to lead people to that point where they can critique it and if they're scared of poetry because that's the first point of call then that's going to be really off-putting so i you know i don't agree with the direction it's gone um and I feel like if I think teachers should be given more free reign to choose work that will allow a group to access poetry, A, and then look at some stuff that's on the curriculum. But it's too prescriptive, you know, and that's not to diss um, your Armitages and the and various other of those poets. But there's a lot out there. Poetry is a very rich ecology and, and you shouldn't be just, you know, stuck with with those names it's, it's good to hear that there are other, there's you know MTS Darker who's up for laureate and it's good to hear like Maura Dooley in there who's fantastic and you know but this it's massively over uh, what far too many men and that's not representative it's not diverse enough at all I've got um a bugbear too about there's a total lack of queer literature still like anything that represents yeah I've done a resource for, for a first story which hopefully will be uh, designed next week and out um, and coming out for LGBT History Month uh, so that the writers, first story writers, can use those resources because growing up in Section 28, I, you know, I think I'm very aware of the lack of visibility in that content. So um, that's something I'm really passionate about too. <laughs> and so, yeah, and actually I think it's so um, amazing to not straightwash that history and to be able to say, you know, queer people have been around but and writing and being creative for many hundreds, thousands of years. Thank you very much. Um, and to stake our claim again, because there was a long period of time, and it, for me as an educator, uh, it's taken quite a long time to rebalance. You know, if you grow up in an atmosphere of censorship and shame, then actually it's a bit tricky when you're going to school. And then you're sort of like, oh, I feel a bit weird about being out here. And these days, so I've kind of addressed that by, by saying, actually, you know, I want to make this resource. I want to kind of do be really affirmative about that as a yeah uh, reparative act i guess there's a bit of again a bit of controversy regarding literacy levels in young people um Mm -hmm. the uk is lagging behind on all that pisa scale nonsense libraries are closing what would you what is your your thoughts on the importance of reading for young people yeah i sort of i'm I'm mindful that quite a lot of the time what happens, and I think this happens between generations uh, a lot of the time, there's this sense of, oh, you're all on your phones all the time, or you're all doing this, or you're doing that. And I think if we can if we can kind of, instead of making that an, an othering thing with um, you know, digital technologies that are also an incredible tool, uh, is to reframe them as such, is to say that you've got this incredible tool in your pocket that you can use for creative stuff, as well as reading from books, because there's a lot of evidence um, neurologically that the way that we read off a screen is quite different to the way we read off a book so i think it's really important and for young people's attention span is to yes set aside time for reading and i now have to do this where i go and put my phone in the other room and i sit and read and once i'm in the mode of reading and you can feel yourself settle into it then i'm like oh isn't reading wonderful and i just sit and read a whole pamphlet of poems or read whatever um so i think being being honest about that and saying that is important and it's a really good discipline to be able to focus and just sit and read because that's ultimately how you learn to read is you sit and read and you love reading so we need to kind of promote a love of reading and that's reading whatever you enjoy reading 
um, is the other thing. And again, I think this prescriptive element of the curriculum where you have to read Jekyll and Hyde, which is a wonderful story, but the language is hard. Um, so, of course, if you're, you know, a younger person from a background where there's not many books around or where you've got English as an additional language and then you're launched into Jekyll and Hyde, I mean, hats off to teachers that make that work. But it's very difficult. So I think encouraging young people, again, giving more scope for teachers to choose what will work with a group. Um, and for me, I worked in people referral units for a while where you tend to have a bit more wiggle room as to what you can work with just to engage those young people. And if they want to read car magazines, like read those with them to start with. You know, again, it's like finding what will work as an access point and then building from there. Because um, I don't read stuff I don't enjoy. <laughs> so I don't really see why young people should have to. And shouldn't we encourage choice and developing taste? You know, for me in poetry in groups as well. Or if I do a lot of work in art galleries and, and my dissertation and my master's was about writing for well-being in museums and art galleries. And I think part of the therapeutic value of that and of reading poetry is developing your own taste, which explores your worldview, which explores your values. Like that's important. It's important stuff, not just for literacy. But of course, it, it, it has a bearing on literacy. Because if you're reading more, you're enjoying reading, you're going to go and find your own you know, threads of literature and of whatever else to, to, to look at. But everyone's just going to be different. You know, I put a book down if it's not got me in the first couple of chapters, because I don't want to waste my time. And I don't see why, you know, I think forcing young people to read stuff that they're finding incredibly tedious and, and often is archaic. And I'm not saying that, you know, canonical literature, all of it, as we said, is is uh, necessarily bad, in inverted commas. But I certainly think we need to give more options than that. So, yeah, that's what I think. <laughs> so it's a question that's been up on teacher Twitter for a bit. And y'all know that I love a bit of teacher Twitter. I'm on it all the time. This button issue has been the phone ban. A lot of schools are saying no no phones on site, even if it's turned off and in your bag. Nope, 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 nope. And there's been this picture doing the rounds of a teacher totted up how many notifications her students got in a lesson and it was like 600 or something. So there's this big, big pushback on young people being allowed phones. So... We've got to ask Caleb, what does he think about this? Um, I feel like banning things makes them really exciting and appealing and also means that you're working on a kind of 19th century paradigm within your kind of in your schooling environment. So I think I'm not into banning personally. I refer you back to section 20. <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't think banning is particularly helpful. Um, and also I think what you're doing then is you're promoting this kind of I think it's a very authoritarian approach and I know that some schools feel like they have to do that. I've certainly visited schools where I feel like they're so authoritarian that the kids don't feel like they can say anything and I think that's a problem. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, if they can't even have their phones... Also, I think you're, you're, you're then suggesting that if they're allowed them at break and at lunch, then you just get this total, like, we're all just on our phones immediately then. Um, so I prefer a school environment personally where there's a bit more flexibility and where young people can um, learn some self-control, uh, which doesn't just mean banning things. Um, I understand that with the pressures that a lot of teachers face, and I, I, when I was teaching, I get it, but we would kind of find some more negotiated ways of working with those. Or sometimes if we went on visits places, it's like, well, you know, like everyone does now, I might want to take pictures like with my phone because I've got this brilliant camera in my phone why wouldn't I do that or I might want to record for young people who are not so good on written literacy they might want to record voice notes of poem ideas for example or something else so I think 
this fear of technology as much as I also think there's, it's got a lot to answer for. So, you know, I'm trying to give a balanced response. Uh, but the fear of it and the banning of it is not very helpful and just makes it more glamorous and um, underground. And it means it's solely used by some young people as like for social media, which again, if you're not te- teaching good social skills and social literacy, that, that just extends onto the social media. I've kind of always thought this with social media and young people, this thing of like, it's just bad. And I think it, it's got bad aspects. But if you don't have good social skills, like knowing where your boundaries are, like knowing what to disclose to who, then you're just going to extend those poor social skills to social media. So I think there needs to be... So I guess that's, that's the nub of it for me, is that more needs to be done to reframe um, digital technologies as a tool as something that you can use really creatively and productively um, and to extend good social skills and good self-discipline to the use of them i think banning them is just like doing more harm than it's probably as good to be honest but i'm also not the head of a school in a really challenging area so uh, it's easy for me to say but i i know i can understand why they get to that place with being under resourced and stressed and on that beautifully sympathetic note to the plight of teachers everywhere, plight, and I'm saying that completely without sarcasm, because it's been a, it's been a busy old week for me, give me a little sympathy y'all. I'm going to say a massive, massive thank you to Caleb, if you like the cut of that man's jib, then you may well like to go to couldbethemoon.co.uk, which is his website, get in touch, get him to come visit you. Do a little bit of poetry and all the good stuff. And once again, massive thanks to coming on my little podcast and giving up your time, Caleb. Thank you very, very much. Massive, massive thank you to the Poetry Society for facilitating this bad boy. We are speeding through anniversary month. So anticipated, gone so soon. SDR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com, YouTube search straight talking english the next one i'm gonna do is thomas hardy's neutral tones and it's gonna be miserable search up the full context on amazon book five i'm aiming to get it out by easter cross your fingers peeps and of course patreon slash straight talking english anything you can donate to support my work is fairly really really appreciated you might have just heard the police cars going past the window i live in a rough area every penny counts thank you all so much for listening keep in tune for our normal friday drops of context and all the cool stuff about the poets and our bonus bonus episodes running all the way through to the end of the month thank you very much and have a great week.